Good morning, everyone. I'm Catherine Carrasco, and today's scripture comes from Luke 2, verses 1 through 12. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And, while she, gave, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there were no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the, for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Thank you, Kat. Wow, it's a great season for us. We've been looking at the question of joy and how uh, joy appears in what we're told about the birth of Jesus. And so we'll be tracking that through and actually talking about the passage that um, Taylor mentioned of the Magi on next Sunday morning in this service. And then, of course, looking at the end of that uh, part in Matthew or Luke chapter 2 that Kat just read from, for us this morning. I start with an interesting question this morning. Do you feel accepted? Do you feel acceptable? Like you're accepted by people around you? And that even you accept yourself? And thinking about today and the theme of this passage, I was reminded of like one of my favorite stories. If you haven't seen it as a movie, I would encourage you to do so. Actually, I think it's not by coincidence that the, the latest really strong musical version was released on Christmas Day in 2012. It's Les Miserables. In that edition, Hugh Jackman played the man Jean Valjean. And of course, it's set right before the French Revolution. And the revolution happens as the book is unfolding. The story is about a man, Valjean, is arrested for stealing just one loaf of bread to feed his starving family. After struggling to stay alive in prison for 19 years, he finally escapes. But in escaping, he can find not a single person who will take him in. He, um, and so this is what the text says. See here, this is him speaking. My name is Jean Valjean. I am a convict. I have been 19 years in the galleys. Four days ago, I was set free. During those four days, I have walked 12 leagues. That's about 50 miles. When I reached this place this evening, I went to an inn. They sent me away on account of my yellow passport, the sign that he'd been a criminal. I went to another inn and they said, get out. No one would have me. I went to the prison and they would not let me in. He just wanted to spend the night there. I went into a dog kennel and the dog bit me and drove me away as if he knew who I was. 
I went into the fields to sleep beneath the stars. I thought it would rain, so I came back to town to get the shelter of some doorway. There in the square, I lay down upon a stone. A good woman showed me your house and said, knock there. I have knocked. What is this place? Are you an inn? Now, the person that opened the door was none other than a man named ben Benvenu. He was a bishop in town and one of the most loving human beings you could possibly imagine. He invited Jean Valjean in to rest. He seated a table, they had the best of dinner, and he had the best of beds, something he hadn't enjoyed in decades. And while he was there, it was very curious. He did not ask him his name. And when Valjean asked him why he was not asked his name, here's what the bishop told him. What need have I to know your name? Besides, before you told me, I knew it. Your name is my brother. Valjean is overwhelmed. He's only known rejection everywhere he's turned. And here he's been welcomed with such grace. And this is what he says. You don't despise me. You take me into your house. You light your candles for me. And I haven't hid from you where I come from and how miserable I am. And in this moment, you can almost see, it's like grace begins to shine into his life, right? That he would be welcomed and given a place. It's so beautiful. And as you read this, you think, ah, Victor Hugo, who wrote this, he, he knows about the power of grace. He's, he's telling us a story. He knows how this flows into our lives. Now, as I mentioned this Christmas, we are looking at joy in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And today, I want you to understand and to enter into, I want to too, the joy of being accepted by God. Would you pray together with me? Father, we know what it feels like to walk into places and wonder how will people respond to us? Lord, will they receive us? Will they turn us away? Where we, will we see that they are interested or maybe not so much? And Lord, we live with this in our hearts every day as we encounter people and even the people close to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us Jesus. Show us what you have done in him to change our world. Lord, give us the, the joy of welcome from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the New Testament, if you've heard a Bible verse, the one in football games, baseball games, likely you've heard John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But this is the verse immediately after it. It reads this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I know that surprises us, right? I mean, we think, isn't God, like, isn't he sort of in the condemnation business? Isn't this his game and the way he is with us? And if he's not, we ourselves, we know what it feels like to be under constant scrutiny and judgment, condemnation, or at least the fear of it. Now, as a pastor, I hear it over and over again. It sounds sort of like this. A person will say, he's always judging me. 
or she is always trying to change me. I wish he would just take me as I am. Or if she only knew what I'm really like or what I'd been through in my life, then she wouldn't see me in this way. And by the way, we're surrounded by this stuff. I mean, social media is like a condemnation machine. It opens the way for us to constantly be, be judging and condemning other people. I don't know if you know the history of Facebook. That guy, Mark Zuckerberg, now over top of that empire, was a Harvard University student. And he and some other guys put together a Facebook that first looked like this. It was called Face Mash. Okay? And by the way, those two pictures where you could click on one and say which one you believed was the hottest of the two. I don't know if you can read that little script there, but it says, were we let in, in other words, let in to Harvard for our looks? No. But will we be judged by them? Yes. And so here was this invitation to judge all those other students, people you didn't know, just over their appearance. And this is what became Facebook. It's the source of it. Who's the hottest? And so today, think of the way that we use this tool. There's this deep hunger for approval in the face of so much judgment, everything being judged, right? And it's like the blood sport of our age. So even in politics, you look around culture, it's all about condemnation. Well, I can condemn you back. I counter-condemn you. Well, I condemn you for condemning me back. And we're in this cycle of condemnation. And I think it's so effective for this reason. I think all of us feel some condemning of ourselves, a sense of self-condemnation. I mean, we know the ways that we've fallen short in our lives. And we lock into our failures, right? We sort of skip over our successes, but we lock into our failures with like laser Laser focus. We know the ways that we've wasted time in our lives or maybe even wasted years of our lives. And, and so how am I going to accept my body, my flaws, my limitations, my mistakes, my story? I've made a huge mess of things. And we believe if this is how we see ourselves, other people see us like this, how must God see us? I mean, if he would love somebody, he's not going to love somebody like me. Maybe somebody who has their act together has done a much better job in their life than I have, but certainly not me. I mean, I know my weaknesses. I know the ways I've fallen short. And into our fear that we're not acceptable, God actually shows us that he fully accepts us. Like the bishop received Jean Valjean, the criminal. And that's what I want to look at with you today. We're, what that is, what that means, how God does that, and how we can live in the joy of God's acceptance. As we turn to chapter 2 of Luke, I mean, it's sort of like shock for us, okay, as we read it. As we start this chapter, we're confronted with a story that forces us to say, hey, step into reality. Step into reality here. Notice how it begins. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, you may say, what's surprising? I mean, I've heard that every Christmas we read this, right? Well, let me tell you what's surprising about it. 
The Greeks and Romans, these separate cultures, each had 12 different main deities. The Romans alone had another 67. There were stories of births and deaths and even resurrections of some of them. But you know the thing that you know about every one of them? None of them have a story that actually enters into history. We are being told of a point in time, a point when the king, Caesar, was Augustus. He led the empire through a time of peace after, after uh, uh, Julius Caesar. We're being told of a governor in the region. You see, all those other deities, they never put their feet on earth. They never entered time and space. They never came and become, be, have become a part of history. But here is Jesus. It would be like talking about Jesus was born over there in Miramar after he traveled down here from Cutler Ridge. I remember uh, years ago, it was um, probably in the late 70s, I discovered because I was living in North Carolina that this guy uh, who lived in Georgia had actually written a translation of some of the books of the New Testament from the setting in Georgia where he lived. It's called the Cotton Patch Version. This is of Luke and Acts here, but he wrote a number of books. And part of this section of the gospel that he translated goes like this. Joseph, too, went up from South Georgia, from the city of Valdosta, to his home in North Georgia, a place named Gainesville, to register with his bride Mary, who was by now very heavily pregnant. While they were there, the time came, and she gave birth to her first boy. She wrapped him in a blanket and laid him in an apple box. There was no room for them at the hospital. Well, I remember reading that and thinking, well, I've been to Valdosta. I would drive through Valdosta all the time. And, and I've been to Gainesville, Georgia, and I've walked that street. And you see, as you read the New Testament, we don't have the story that's this, this mythological story of this so-called person. We have a person who entered into history, time and space to be with us so that we would be able to get the gospel. Our faith is rooted in reality. This really happened. Jesus was born. God has come. You see, at the heart of our acceptance is that God showed up to be God with us. And by the way, not with some of us. And that leads to the surprise of this scene because right after we're told of the birth of Jesus, right away we're introduced to the, to the shepherds. Now, by the way, this is sort of shows what, how God promises, what he promises in Jesus. These guys, you might say, were something like the truck drivers of their day. Now, it's true, shepherding was an honorable profession, but they, this was dirty business. And by the way, they only stayed with their sheep in the field at night when it's the time for lambing. That means the babies are being born and they're helping. And so these guys are absolutely messy, they are dirty, and you think, okay, why does God, if he's going to introduce this happening to a group of people, why does he choose them? And why at this time, really messy shepherds are going there to see Jesus? What is going on? I think we hear about it in the announcement of the angel who says this, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. God has chosen a people on the fringe, a people of no importance. It's true, they're out there where the sheep are lambing, and by the way, another lamb is being born, right? The lamb of God, but they're of no importance. Why does God do this? 
He wants to show us that he is no respecter of persons. And did you get those last words they say? It says this, for all the people. It doesn't say, oh, this is for people who don't have a past, or this is only for Jewish people, or this is only for people who are living in this time, or this is only for people who have gained a measure of success and approval. The good news is whoever you are, whatever you have done, Jesus came for you, for all the people. Let me put a finer edge on it. I say it like this. There is no one that God does not want to be with. Wow, that sounds like heresy. That can't be true, but it is. And if you see the people Jesus pursued, you will see repeatedly, this is true, he pursued religious bigots, liberal politicians, far-right terrorists, people who extorted money, adulterers, he ate with tax collectors and Pharisees. He recruited among his disciples a guy who was a terrorist. Each one of these people, Jesus accepted them. He took them as they were. Many times I've shared the quote of this guy, Brennan Manning. He said it like this. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. It is the message of grace, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. And the reason is because Jesus is enough. You see, God promises to us acceptance in Jesus. Wherever you are, whatever's happened in your life, Jesus has come for you. Now, I think about this, and if I think if this is true, why do we feel like, why are we living under such condemnation? What is going on? Why are we stuck? Why don't we experience the joy of God's acceptance? I'll make it very simple. It's because this is the water we're swimming in every day. We are surrounded by people we want to fix or who want to fix us. Your spouse does things differently than you do if you're married. And this irks you. It irritates you. Your child is not doing what you want. And your coworker is intolerable. So in subtle ways, you're like, ah, you judge them, right? Or condemn. Now, don't get me wrong. I know you want your child, it's okay to want your child to do better in school. And it's fine for your, you want your spouse to be free from a harmful habit. I totally get that. But we go beyond wanting. We're determined to make it happen, right? Force it by using rejection as our tool. I like the way the wording that the Christian philosopher uses to talk about this. I love this terminology. He says, he calls it condemnation engineering. Like, well, I can make this happen if I condemn you enough, right? Trying to force people to change. And by the way, the Jewish people were like at the top of the class in shaming people who sinned and rejecting people who failed. This was like a part of the way they lived every day. It was woven into their world. This guy, Rick Blackman, is a Christian psychologist who's impacted my thinking a lot in this. He has what he calls a scale of acceptance. 
And um, you'll see in this scale, it starts with condemnation. That's going to be another slide. There we go. It starts with condemn, right? And so this is what we do. We think this is going to change people. It's going to fix people. And then maybe, and by the way, he says his goal when he meets with people is just to try and get them to dial down the condemnation. So if he can get them from condemn to just resist, a lot of progress has been made. But then after that, then you tolerate, right? Toleration. Maybe he can get them to tolerate or then maybe to accept and then ultimately to embrace. And when he meets couples who are struggling to accept each other, he wants them again just to take the next step. And he says this. He says, look, I will give you the three rules for changing your spouse. These are the rules. Rule number one. Lose interest in changing your spouse. Can you guess what rule two is? Rule two is lose interest in changing your spouse. Can you guess what rule three is? Lose interest in changing your spouse. Or fill in the blank. Put your child in there. Now, I know it sounds like the three rules of real estate, right? Location, location. Like lose interest. And you will discover that love and embrace is the path God uses to change his people, to work in us, not condemnation. And so he challenges people with this, which I will challenge you. Give up the husband or wife you dreamed of having and realize this is the one you actually have. Okay, I know you're looking over at that person right now who's been trying to fix you the most. Or put it like this, give up the child you dreamed of having and realize this is the one you actually have. This is acceptance, right? And so let me tell you, this person is a work in progress and you've mistakenly believed that they should be the finished product. But no one is. And so begin with acceptance. And by the way, this doesn't mean even then we do not question their worth and value as human beings. We don't write them off as rejects. And I know this is so painful and difficult for us. It's very painful. We are stubborn. We want the world on our own terms rather than the world as it actually is. Do you know God is more of a realist than all of us? He's more of a realist than he is. He sends Jesus into the world as it actually is, as it is. Do you know the reason, by the way, the Jewish people believed all those years past and the Messiah hadn't come? What they told themselves was, we've been unfaithful. We haven't done the right things. We haven't been faithful enough. They had failed in their calling. But really, can anybody, I mean, if we live such a life that he actually would come. Does he need to come? You see, he came out of love. They were con condemning themselves. Nobody can be faithful enough. And so this is what we do with each other and even to ourselves. But this is not God's way. So you say, well, how can I have the joy of acceptance? We need to see that God is not into condemnation engineering. That's not how he's going to work in your life. He knows that condemning us will not save us. He begins with acceptance. And by the way, one of the most powerful stories in the New Testament, it really looks like when we read the New Testament and look at the documents, 
that the scribes didn't even want to copy it. It was so threatening. That the acceptance of Jesus is so overwhelming, and actually we believe it got located from one place in the New Testament to another. It's a passage at the beginning of John chapter 8, and it tells about a day when Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he passes into this scene where a, where a woman has been caught in the act of adultery. She's guilty. There's, that's absolutely clear. She has done this thing. And a group of men have shown up, and they're, they're ready to stone her. They're picking up stones, and Jesus gets between those men with the stones and the woman. And then he just stoops down, and he starts writing in the sand. And as he writes in the sand, he speaks to those men, and this is what he says. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then slowly, beginning with the oldest first, and again, Jesus stoops down and is writing in the sand. Then slowly, with the oldest to the youngest, they all slink away until finally Jesus is left alone there with a woman they're ready to kill with their stones. Here's what happens. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, she hasn't cleaned up her life. She hasn't healed the brokenness that came out of what she did. But Jesus is here refusing to condemn her. And you would say, how in the world can he do that? It's really simple. He could do that because he will be condemned for her. He will take the condemnation. And this is how God can accept us. Here's the angel's announcement. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now here's the mention not only of joy, but great joy. And why a Savior has come. The good news is Jesus does the saving. We don't save anybody. And by the way, you couldn't save yourself. He's come for you. And how does he do this? The Messiah will not condemn people. He will die in the most tragic and horrific death to remove everything that keeps us away from God. Anything that would leave us condemned. And this is grace. Not that we get our lives together, but Jesus shows up in history out of love. And he lays down his life for our freedom. Acceptance, by the way, for God, it's not passivity. It's embracing it's doing what needs to be done to bring us together to him. It's engaging us at the point of our brokenness and our sin and providing us with forgiveness. And by the way, his, his death opens the way for a new life. So that in the New Testament, this is how it's said. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, I want to cheer over that. You've got to be kidding me. I know the stuff that's gone down in my life. I don't know in yours, but to know you're not under the weight of that. You're not condemned in that. We are not condemned, but loved, not rejected, but embraced. It's an overwhelming thing. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, somebody reminded me of a story that came from the life of Abraham Lincoln, one of our great presidents. You may not have heard of this story. He, he was from Illinois, and he was a lawyer there. And at one time, I see a picture of him, a, a big case came up. It was a big national case. 
but it was going to be heard in Illinois, so he was hired. He was a small-time lawyer, not really known. But after he was hired, the, the, the case got moved out of Illinois to Ohio, to Cleveland. And rather than kick him off the case, he was invited to be a part of it. And the guy who was then leading the case was one of the nation's great attorneys at the time. His name is Edward Stanton. You'll see a picture of him. Now, this guy was brilliant, but he was super arrogant. He was brask. I mean, he was, he was not easy to work with. And he thought very little of Lincoln, so much so that Lincoln did tons of research and gave it to him for the case. And Stanton wouldn't even look at it. And then finally, when the trial began, he wouldn't even allow Lincoln, because of the way he viewed him, to sit next to him, even though he was one of the attorneys in the case. He had nothing but contempt for him. And at one point, he referred to Lincoln like this. He says, he's, he's a long-armed ape. That's what he is. And years later, after, even after Lincoln became president and the Civil War broke out, he wrote a letter to a friend and he said, you know what, Washington is going to fall in a month because Lincoln is a total imbecile. Let me tell you what happened. Going through the war, the Secretary of War, Secretary of Defense, uh, called Secretary of War at the time, was found to be corrupt. He was not doing his job. And when Lincoln went to his advisors and said, I need a new Secretary of War, they said, there's, only, there's the best person for this job is this guy, Edwin Stanton. And you know what he did? He brought him onto his cabinet. And he completely embraced him with all that he had said. And Stanton did an amazing job. During that time while Lincoln was serving, Lincoln gave a speech, and it was an awesome speech. It was so awesome that one of Stanton's friends wrote him and said, oh, you must have written this for Lincoln because this imbecile couldn't have written it and this is what he wrote back to his friends. He, he said, no, I did not. Never were men more wrong about somebody than we were about Abraham Lincoln. He is the best of us. That night when Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater, he was taken out to a nearby hotel. And you know who arrived and went right by his bed when that happened? This man, Edward Stanton. He stayed with him till the very end, and he just, he hovered over his bed, and he, he sobbed. He was so brokenhearted because he had been loved and embraced by this man who shot, should not have done that. I remember reading the story and just being overwhelmed. And you know, what, you know what Stanton said? When he died, he was right there with Lincoln. He wouldn't leave. This is what he said. He said, now he belongs to the ages. You know what this was a story for me? It's the story of acceptance. And it's a small glimmer of the kind of acceptance that God has given to you and the way God looks upon you. However you've lived your life, whatever has happened in your life up to now, this is the engine for life and heart change. And this is what God has done for us in Jesus. But you must get to the joy of it. Each of us lives with the fear that we're not acceptable. And this is a time when hopefully we see the love of Jesus, all that he's done for us, and we know that God has received us. And you know what? There's such joy and freedom in that. There's no condemnation. I, I don't stand condemned. And Dallas Willard put it like this. I love what he said. He said, when we enter the life of friendship with Jesus, who is at work in our universe, we stand in a new reality where condemnation is simply irrelevant. Isn't that beautiful? It's irrelevant. 
He says, as for the condemnation we may receive from others, I endeavor not to receive it, to just ignore it or drop it. I have learned to look at it only while simultaneously holding in full view the fact that Jesus, so far from condemning me, died for me and is right now intervening on my behalf in the heavens. And then he said this, this helps me stay out of counter-condemnation. How are you going to stay out of condemning others? You see, it's going to be because you see yourself as you are and you see the way that God has embraced and loved you. You begin to see this radical acceptance. And you know what? All of a sudden, we become non-condemning spirits, and people discover this is God. This is what he's done for us in Jesus. And then later in the New Testament, you read this. It's beautiful. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Rejoice because of Jesus. God has accepted you. You don't stand condemned. You can have the wonder of living in this freedom. And you can also learn to treat others with the same kind of grace and acceptance that you have received from Jesus. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, if we could just get this, if we could see that you're the God who, you bring us into your cabinet, <laughs> you honor us. Even, even all the ways we've dishonored you. And you love us. And Father, thank you that that news was announced not just to a few people, but this good news is for all the people, for every one of us, that there are none of us so far from your grace, so far from you, that you haven't come to us already in Christ. So Lord, help us to understand this this Christmas and cause us to be that presence. Lord, we're going to be at Christmas parties, and maybe even with some people we don't like. Teach us this way of acceptance and embrace. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.